Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Adam Diamond. I work with Mile One Mission with Calvary, so I work to see churches planted in the city. And I've been working my way through the book of Jonah. So it's great to be in front of you again this morning. Like most of the other guys I've gotten up to preach lately, I have not been in this spot in front of all of you since December of last year. So that's really weird to think about. Uh, it's really weird to take in. And who would have thought that all these things could have happened and that us who preach to you would be nervous actually standing in front of people? You wouldn't have thought that would happen, but it makes you nervous almost to be in front of people. Like, I can read your faces right now. Whereas for the past couple of months, it was, I'm looking at a camera and I'm hoping you're get, getting what I'm saying. Whereas here, I can tell if you're smiling or, you know, later on when I get to one of the puns I have in my sermon, I can tell whether... You find it funny or you're rolling your eyes. Whereas before, I, I got to imagine that you all laughed and it was amazing. <laughs> but we know that probably wasn't the case. So before we get started this morning, uh, my, my message is called this morning, Gaining a Proper Perspective. And I want to ask you, when you take a picture, have you ever taken one that's been really out of focus? It's just been really bad. You take you look, I don't want to use that one. Or, you know, if you're taking something for Instagram, you're taking a selfie, and you're like, yep, yeah, nope, not that one, not that one. Uh, or worse, you're on vacation, you ask someone to take a picture for you, and it's a horrible picture. And you don't want to be rude and be like, yeah, you did a horrible job, but you don't really want to show anyone that picture either because it just doesn't convey what, you, what that moment was for you and what you're experiencing in that moment. So our focus matters, and I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we get into our text because as we get into it, I want to challenge Jonah's perspective, and I also want to challenge our perspective in how we read this passage, but also in how we view God. And I have two questions I want you to think about this morning. So number one, I want you to think about how do you view your relationship with God? And number two, how does that impact how you live? So if any of you are writing that down, number one is how do you view your relationship with God? And number two, how does that impact how you live? So keep that in mind as we're going. Now, so far in Jonah, again, we're only just in chapter two. This is my fourth sermon in. But so far in Jonah, we've seen that he's running from God's calling on his life. But through that, we've learned that God has a calling on all of our lives as Christians. That we're all called to tell people about the gospel and to go out and make disciples. The Great Commission. And then we see Jonah's descent into his sin and how he spirals down, 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 and how he deceives himself. And when I preached on that, we learn that we can deceive ourselves in our sin, that we can have hidden sin in our lives, and we might not even be aware of it. And then after that, Jonah then tells the sailors that to solve the, their, their problem in the storm, they have to throw him overboard. And from that, we learned, we, we compared Jonah's response and his running from God to the true faith and repentance found in the sailors. And this is where we find ourselves now. That Jonah has been thrown into this ocean. And remember, this is not a pleasant scene. This is a storm that God has sent after Jonah. The text says that it threatened to break the ship apart. The sailors were terrified. You can imagine the wind was howling, the rain was coming down in sheets, and they probably couldn't see much of what was happening. 
And then you have this prophet of God, the spokesperson for God telling you, if you want to resolve this, you need to throw me into the ocean. And the sailors didn't want to do that at first. They tried to roll back to land, but they couldn't get back there. So they were left with what Jonah had. And they even said to God, like, you have done this. Don't put his blood on our hands, for you have done this, O God. And this is, this is where we find ourselves this morning. And this is probably the most famous part of the story. Jonah and the giant fish. And no, it is not a whale. It is a fish. But don't forget what I said about perspective. Because I would venture to say that most of us have read this or we have heard the story and we thought about the fish swallowing Jonah as some sort of punishment. But this isn't only about punishment. To focus on punishment would to be out of focus for what's happening here. It's not just about Jonah being punished. There's, there's more going on. And if we think even Sunday school about that song, I don't want to be a Jonah and be swallowed by a whale. It's that, that tone almost sets you up to think that this is Jonah being punished for what he's done. But that's not the case. So I want us to step back, let's reset, let's get some focus, and let's look at our passage. So we start and we see that, as, as Jeff read out, that God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. How many of us have ever appointed a fish? No one. And I'm going to put that in my hand because I have never appointed a fish. And think about that. God basically said, at least in my mind, I know this might not be how it worked out, but hey, fish, you go swallow that man right there. And the fish goes and does it. And we, we've never done that. I mean, as a kid, I imagined having, you know, being able to just talk to animals and get them to do what I wanted to do. Or, you know, I was out, I'd be out fishing, and I don't really want to admit this because Aquaman is not everyone's favorite hero. But thinking about Aquaman's ability to talk to fish, and, you know, you're out fishing, and you're like, I wish I could tell a cod to go bite my hook, right? It never did happen. As much as I imagined it to be true, it just never happened. Because I'm not God. God appointed this fish to go and save Jonah, to, to swallow him. God is sovereign over all of his creation. There is nothing here, nothing that you see, nothing you can think of that is outside of God's control. And Jesus even shows us when he was on earth and when he calmed the storm, all he said was, peace, be still. And the text says the water calmed immediately. Jesus even showed that there was authority over creation. And I think that's something wonderful for us to rest in. Knowing that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. I mean, some of us even have a hard enough time getting a dog to sit or stay or getting our kids to listen to us, let alone tell a fish to go and swallow a man. There's something great happening in this passage here. It's not every day you, like God tells a fish to go swallow someone. So as we move in past chapter 1, verse 17, into Jonah's prayer, it can be broken down into three parts. We have, in verses 1 to 3, we have Jonah's, we have the introduction. From 4 to 6, we have Jonah's distress. And then from 7 to 9, we have Jonah's vows. So that's how his prayer is broken down here. And then as we look at his prayer, we can obviously tell that Jonah's his resol his resolve to die for his sin has obviously waned. After he's been thrown into that ocean, because he, he was ready to die for his sin. He, he, he did not repent. He did not turn back to God. He said, throw me overboard. He was going to die for his sin. 
But now that he's faced with that, he's faced with those consequences, it's waned. He's calling out to God. Verse 2 says that Jonah called out to the Lord, and this is the first time that we see the prophet call out to God. Remember when he was on the ship and the, the captain went down to him, he said, what are you doing? Because Jonah was asleep. He said, call out to your God. Maybe he will hear us. Jonah never did it. But now when his life is actually at stake and he knows there's nothing left, that's when the prophet turns his face to God. He was at death's door. He knew he was going to die. And this is why it says, Ever the belly of Sheol I cried, because Sheol was the grave, the land of the dead. And Jonah, he might not have been dying dead right then, but he was dying. He was at death's door. He knew there was no way out of this. So he looked to God for his salvation. Verses 4 to 6, we have Jonah's dilemma or his distress. The prophet admits in verse 4 that he is driven from God's sight, but he determines to look towards God's temple again where his presence is supposed to reside. Although we see the God that resides in that temple very active outside of Jerusalem. He prays that God would save him. But notice in this prayer, notice this. If you look at it in your Bibles, Jonah doesn't admit any wrongdoing in this prayer. You see no mention of him running. You see no mention of his sin. He doesn't mention it at all. One commentator notes, it is also important to note what Jonah does not say. He makes no mention of his own role in the events that brought him here especially his flight from the divine commission and his failure to repent while on board the ship. Jonah fails to repent here in his prayer. We move to verse 5, and you get a very graphic scene where Jonah says the seaweed has wrapped around his head and that is dragging him down. If you talk to anyone who has come close to drowning, they're going to tell you it's not a pleasant experience. And they can likely tell you of the pain of what it feels like to have water fill your lungs. Jonah is facing death right here, right in the face. His life is failing right before his eyes. Verse 6, although, gives us a positive note as it says, the Lord lifts him up from the pit, or again from the grave. We see here that God has heard his prayer. Even though Jonah is not repentant, he has turned to him. He has turned to God. Verse 7 and 9 are in Jonah's vows after he has been saved. In verse 7, although we don't know the exact moment Jonah prayed, from verse 7 we can pretty much gather that Jonah waited until the last second to look to God. Again, I'm setting this up so you can see Jonah's mentality here. He waited to the last possible moment to turn to God in his prayer. Let me ask you very quickly, when do we pray? Do we wait until the last moment when things seem to be at their worst before we turn to God? Shouldn't we be going to God always? Or is God's ear only open when our life is down, when we're drowning in the ocean? Why do we wait? Is it because we think that we can handle it? We think, I, I've got this. I, I can handle this. I, I don't need to pray right now. I don't need God right now. I can do this. I'll prove myself. I got this. But then we're forced to admit that we don't have it. 
And I want you to see that we're, we're not far off of Jonah at this point. We may not have the exact attitude. But like Jonah, we often wait until the last moment to go to God in prayer. When he's always there. Verses 8 to 9 are then very interesting because Jonah does a very flattering comparison of himself and those who worship idols. He says, those who that worship idols, they, they forsake the mercies of God because they worship the created rather than the creator. And in this prayer, he's absolutely right that those who worship idols miss out on what God has. They miss out on God's mercies. But think for a second. Who are the idol worshipers he could be referring to here? Because the only idol worshipers we've encountered so far are the sailors on the ship who call it to their own gods. And then the Ninevites who Jonah will later preach to. These are the only ones we know who worship idols. Jonah is almost prideful in what he states, saying that he, on the other hand, I will offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, God. I will sacrifice thanksgiving to you, although these people won't do it. This is his prayer. But ironically, he doesn't know that those idol worshipers he's referring to, the sailors, have literally just done what he's saying he's going to do. Because after they throw Jonah into the ocean and it calms, it says that they made vows to the Lord and made sacrifices. The ones Jonah are looking down on are the very ones that are showing true faith in Yahweh. They're showing true repentance, and he's looking down on them because he's an Israelite. And he has that special access to God, he thinks, regardless of the state of his heart. His attitude has not changed here, even in his prayer. And he wants to see more. In chapter 2, verse 3, he almost blames God. He says, you have thrown me into this. He, he points his finger at God like, you've done this to me. Again, omitting any fact that, he, that the very reason he's in this situation is because he ran from God to begin with and he didn't repent. But he looks to God and says, you've done this to me. Jonah was unaware of the state of his heart. He hung on to who he was, his nationality, his heritage, and who he was as an Israelite, as one of God's chosen people. And that's what he clung on to. But however, he did know, and this is, this is the confliction we see in Jonah, he did know the characters of God. He knew that if he turned to God and he appealed to his mercy, that God would save him. Because mercy is withholding what we do, do deserve. Jonah deserved to die, but God was merciful to him, and he sent the fish. He knew that God would save him. He focuses on himself, even in his prayer of thanksgiving. You look through the text in that prayer there in chapter 2, and it's mostly about him. There's very little mention about God. And specifically in verses 8 to 9, when he says, I will do this, I will make vows, and I will fulfill them, and I will do this. He's looking at what he can do, and not what God has done. But probably the biggest statement that Jonah makes is it is at the very end of his prayer. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do we understand what kind of amazing statement that is this morning? The songs that we sang, that I'm overwhelmed, 
by you. I'm overwhelmed by your name. I'm overcome by you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we really believe that? Because right in this moment, God took everything away. And although Jonah might have deserved it, he still turned to God. He still knew God's character. He trusted in him. And it's because God saves, he's a God of salvation, that we can trust in him. We can trust in who he is. We can trust in his promises. In verse 2 to 6 is when Jonah says he's going to turn his face to God and God lifts him up from the pit. God hears his prayer because he's merciful. And I've, I've said that Jonah's heart wasn't in the right place. And we can look down on that. We can say, what, what, what a putz, right? What kind of guy is this? We know he's done wrong. And, but he, he's not doing the right thing and going to God. Shouldn't he repent here? Shouldn't he turn to God of repentance here? He's turning to God almost of his own selfishness to be saved here. Listen, we don't always get it right either. When we go to God, and you go to him in repentance and prayer, I don't get it right. You don't get it right. And that's actually good news because we don't have to be perfect going to God. The gospel isn't make yourself right and then come to me. The gospel is come to me now and I will make you right. God will make you right. Jonah is exemplifying here the gospel, even though he's being very disobedient and we don't want to be like Jonah. That part of the song was right. He's exemplifying the gospel that we don't get it right, but we still need to turn to God anyways. And we can trust in him. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Again, we know what it says in Scripture. God's ways are not our ways. But that doesn't mean we can't trust in him. I'm sure we can all think back of times when God has proven himself, even though we thought Something else is going to happen. We didn't know if God was actually there or listening. But God's proven himself that we can trust him, and his word is true. Whether you're on the mountaintop and everything is great, or you find yourself like Jonah and you're drowning and you feel like all is lost, you can still trust in those promises. You can trust that God is who he says he is. And listen, I get it. We all have doubts. We all have times when we doubt that God is actually there or that he's listening, but when we have those doubts is when we remind ourselves of who God is. We go back to his word and we remind ourselves of who he is. So let me ask you again about those questions at the beginning. How do you view your relationship with God? At this point, we see Jonah's view was skewed. It was out of focus, but he still trusted in the Lord. And how does that, how does your view of God affect how you're living right now? For Jonah, because his view was skewed, he had the wrong perspective. He thought he was above and better than everyone else because he was an Israelite and he missed the state of his own heart. Where is our focus right now and how is it affecting how you're living your life? 
Now this passage, I mentioned the fact about punishment. This passage is clearly a salvation passage. Otherwise, Jonah was going to die. He says he cried out from the belly of Sheol, from the grave. That fish saved Jonah. Otherwise, the prophet would have died. The emphasis is not on the fish. We could easily say something fishy is happening here, but that something fishy thing should not be our focus. I purposely skipped over the the end part of chapter 1, verse 17, where it says the Lord appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. But it then goes on to say that Jonah then spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And then we see his prayer. I've I've skipped that over because I, I wanted to bring it up here and point out to you that that three days and three nights essentially means that Jonah was dead. He might as well have been considered dead. Whether he died or not, he was at death's door. And just think for a second, he almost drowned, and now he's in the belly of a fish, which is certainly not a three-day cruise. But we don't know what it was. You can't imagine what it was like in the belly of the fish, but I can imagine, I can probably say it was not an enjoyable time. He might as well have been dead. But then how does this end? Jonah prays, and end of chapter 2 says that God then commanded, and we see God very active again then, he commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up. And as gross as that may sound, he was given new life. God is essentially reviving Jonah or resurrecting him here because of those three days and three nights which would have meant that he was to be thought of as dead. And it ties in amazingly and gives more life to Jonah's statement in 2 verse 9 where he says salvation belongs to the Lord. Because Jonah was saved from death. And if we think about it, as Christians, we're saved from death because of Christ's death and resurrection. And you might know this or you might not, but Jesus actually references Jonah in the New Testament in Matthew Chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. And it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That seems a bit of a harsh thing for Jesus to say that you're an adulterous and evil generation. But if we look at where this is found, this is just coming off of when the Pharisees claimed that Jesus got his power from Satan, his power to do miracles. But then Jesus corrects him, he rebukes him and says, that can't be the case. A house divided can't stand on its own. Satan can't stand against himself. And then we see another passage before that where Jesus says that we will be held accountable for the words we speak. So given that context, we can see why Jesus responds this way because you have the Pharisees who have just claimed that Jesus got his powers from Satan. They're now claiming a sign from him to perform one of those miracles or one of those signs. It seems we have another group of people who don't correctly view how they stand with God. See, how we view God affects every aspect of our lives. 
And that's what I want us to see here. See, there have been many times I've talked with people who aren't Christians about whether they believe in God or not. And if they say they don't believe in God, I, I will ask them, what kind of God don't you believe in? And almost 99% of the time, I don't believe in that same God. I don't believe in the, I can agree with them. I don't believe in that God. They say they don't believe in a God who would judge you unjustly. They don't believe in a God who would abandon his creation. They don't believe in a God who would just be so angry at you for no reason. But that's not the God Christians believe. I don't believe in that God. I can agree with you on that point. Ironically, like Jonah, we believe that God is merciful. We believe that God is compassionate, that he's slow to anger. The God of Christianity does not allow evil to go unchecked. He has not abandoned his creation. And he is one who actually judges us justly. He is a God who cares deeply for us and longs for us to come into a relationship with him because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's the God that we serve. And that's the God that Jonah looked to. And we can rest in God because of our salvation. Because it comes from him. We can rest in knowing that we can't save ourselves. Jonah was helpless to save himself then. And just like that, humanity is helpless to save themselves because of our sin. See, Romans says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. There is no one in this world without sin. And because of our sin, we, can, we stand condemned in front of a holy and righteous and just God who is completely justified in punishing us. But he offers us salvation. He's completely just if he punishes us, but instead he offers us salvation. Our salvation, my salvation, your salvation rests in what Christ has done and not what we can do and not what we've done. We cannot earn our way into God's graces. We cannot earn our salvation. And the best thing is, is that when we screw up, when we mess things up, and sometimes we do it royally, we don't go to God and say, God, I know you saved me, but and I messed up, but I, got, I can fix this. I got this. Don't worry. You know, I, I'm not going to lose my salvation here. I can do this. No. We turn to God and we repent. We run to him because he wants us to come to him. When I was a teenager, I can actually remember being in high school and one of my friends, he wasn't a Christian, but he looked at me and we we're talking about faith. And he said, you know, if you don't want to be a Christian anymore, all you got to do is swear and you're not a Christian anymore. And although that wasn't, you know, that wasn't taught to me by the church or anything, that was a common thought. You know, all he did was like basically sin once and, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. Sorry, God. But that got me thinking of how little do, did I and did they think of God's mercy and grace? You see, if Jesus died for our sins once and, once and, once and for all, then I can't undo what he's done. If we say that Jesus died for all of our sins, then he's not caught off guard when I leave this building 
and I sin by getting angry at someone or me and my wife have a fight or something, I'm forgiven for that. Now, I need to turn to God, yes, and repent, but I'm still forgiven for that. That doesn't undo what Christ has done. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 29-31 says, And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, unrighteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We've done nothing to save ourselves, but Christ has saved us. Likewise, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This passage about Jonah is about salvation. Because if it's not, then people will argue about how many days Jesus actually spent in the grave or what he was actually pointing out to you. Because you see, if it's not about, if it's, if it's about the punishment or if it's about the fish, it doesn't make sense. It's not about the fish. It's about the fact that Jesus was referencing the fact that the Pharisees would only get one sign and that would be the sign that he would be resurrected from the dead, like Jonah. They would get one sign and it would probably be the greatest sign of all. And if God used that fish to save a wayward prophet, then he could save any of us. Jonah may not have actually died, but like I said, he, he was very close to death if he didn't die. Very close to death. And God essentially resurrects him in the end, which gives more life to what Jesus is saying. He's saying to the Pharisees, not on the, you don't focus on the three days. You focus on the fact that Jesus is saying, I am coming back. I will be in that earth, but I will be back. And it's because of that resurrection that we can have life and we can have life abundantly. Jesus even tells the Pharisees here that they, the Ninevites will stand up and condemn them because they believe that the preaching of Jonah, which is another reason I believe Jonah to be very true because Jesus references it. He says the Ninevites will stand up and judge the Pharisees because someone in greater than Jonah is here in front of the Pharisees right now and they're not believing him. It's a hard-hitting passage, but we need to realize that salvation comes from God. It's only through Christ that we are saved. And we need to have that proper focus on that so that when we mess up, we aren't trying to fix it ourselves. We know that we go back to God because we couldn't fix ourselves to begin with. See, about the resurrection, Tim Keller wrote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. See, we need to place our faith in Christ, we need to believe in him and who he is and what he's done. Like I said, if God could save this wayward prophet, a prophet who has run from his call, who has refused to repent, and who values his life above others of different races, then he can save you. 
we are not above salvation and neither are we so good that we don't need to be saved. We are all in need of Christ. Jesus was resurrected so that you and I could live, so that we could have life. Christians, may we never be like Jonah and withhold the gospel from someone just because of where they come from or what they look like or that they're not like us. May we never hold on to the truth like it's some sort of treasure that we're afraid we're going to lose if we share it with anyone else. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be spread. It's meant to be told. It's meant to be preached. That Jesus died so that we could be saved we can't outsin God's mercy and grace. No matter how bad a person is, no matter how much Jonah may have run, he, wouldn't, he couldn't have outran God's mercy and grace. And we can't outsin it. Your sin will never be above God's grace or mercy. See, the serial killer Ted Bundy, before he was killed, he was said to have said, made a confession of faith. I don't have to tell you about the horrible things he's done. Most of you will probably know who I'm referencing. But here's the thing. If he did make a true confession of faith, then he's forgiven. And that might not sit well with us because of what he's done, but we need to realize that we're no better than Ted Bundy. That same grace and that same mercy and that same forgiveness that he would receive is what we are in need of. We might like to point at him and think of how horrible a person he is, but we never like to look back and see how much our sin makes us horrible. We're in need of that same mercy, that same grace and forgiveness that Ted Bundy could have received. As I've said, Jesus died so that we could have life in abundance, and that's found in John chapter 10, verse 10. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that I may have life and have it in abundance. Likewise, John three seventeen says, For God did not send his world in, son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Having a right focus allows us to see that God is working here. He's working for our salvation, but he's also working very actively in this book. We can see that God has called Jonah. He has sent a storm after him. He has appointed the fish to swallow him. He has commanded the fish to spit him up. And that's just in the first two chapters. There's more to come. But let me show you something else, what having the right perspective can do. Because that fish that God used to save Jonah... That's going to help his preaching because the Ninevites that Jonah is going to go preach to, they worship the fish god, Dagon. So in calling Jonah to go and speak to the Ninevites, God then uses a fish to save Jonah as he goes and preaches to the people who worship the fish god. You can't tell me that God is not at work here, that God is not at work in this book, but not only that, in our lives, in this world. This story is such a dramatic retelling, and again, I believe it to be true, but what about the times when things aren't so dramatic? What about the times when things seem to get quiet and God just doesn't seem to be there? Well, I can tell you from experience, 
that when you're praying, it seems like God's not listening or he's not answering, or maybe you even think God doesn't care about your prayers. He is there. God is still working while you're waiting. He hasn't just stopped being God. We might cry foul or we might question or doubt him, and I've done it myself, but it doesn't mean that God isn't working. We just don't like how he's working right now and the fact that we're not getting an answer. See, Jonah's view seems to be that he was supposed to have special privilege and access to God and that no one else deserved that. But then he went ahead and looked down on people because they didn't know God. And so seeing that his identity as an Israelite was supposed to point people towards God. And when we point people towards God and they see when we have that true perspective of who God is, the fact that our salvation comes from God, then we can be confident in who God says we are. And I get it. I know what it's like to be anxious. I know what it's like to doubt God. I know what it's like to forget who God says you are. Depression runs very real in my family, and it's not, I've gotten a lot better, thankfully, but there are still days I have really bad days, and I'm saying this because statistically, there are other people sitting right here who would struggle with depression, and those are the days, real days, I'm reminding myself every 10, 20 minutes of who God says I am because I'm in so low on those days. But because of how I feel or what's happening around me doesn't change the truth about what God says about me. Because when we come to Christ, (laughs) everything changes. It changes everything. And let me ask you one last time, how do you view God? Is he a malevolent being, some genie who grants wishes? Or is he the loving, compassionate, and just God of the universe who wants you to come to him? Psalm 86.15 says, But you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Do we know who God is? Do we realize that, that that's the God that we serve? And he not only loves you, he likes you. He wants to save you. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And he wants to be at work in your life so that you can be used for his glory. And how does your view right now of God affect how you live? Jonah mistook that his identity was more important than who he was in God. He trusted in his, uh, his heritage and who that promise said he was. And he didn't see how it affected those around him. When we come to Christ here, let me tell you what Scripture says about who we are. John 1.12 says, But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified. More scripture points to the fact that we are a new creation, that we are not condemned, that we are justified, and that we are even friends of Christ. Listen, this is what scripture, this is what God says of us when we come to him. Do we believe this? Are we living like we believe this? 
Are you living like you're a new creation? Are you living like you're forgiven and redeemed? Are you even living like you're a son or daughter of God? Jonah claimed his heritage, but we need to claim Christ. And that's all that we can claim. Listen, I've struggled. I've struggled to see what God has said of me. I've struggled to see what God is doing in my own life. I've been working with Mawa Mission, and we've, my family and I, we've attended Calvary for over a year now, and, but that wasn't always easy. When we first came here, this was so different, and I questioned, God, why are you bringing a former Pentecostal pastor and his, and his wife and his children to this church where it seems so different? Why are you bringing me to a place where I'm happy to work, but I'm working with people who have, seem to have such different views on some issues than I do? And let me tell you, I, I doubted, I questioned, and every time I even cried with God, I would come home and I'd be sitting around like, what are we doing? Like, I know I have to trust God, but what are we doing? What, what, why are we here? And it was hard. But let me tell you, we love it here. Sabrina and I just became members of a month or so ago. We have a new church family. You are our new church family, and we love you. I love being here. I love the fact that God has brought us here through those doubts, through those questions, through the uncertainty. I'm not just happy. I'm alive in Christ. Because I have people around me, I have a church family around me that can point me back to who Jesus says I am. And what that salvation means for me. See, it means that we don't rest in our achievements. You don't rest in whether you got an 80 on your test or 60 or 55 or 45. That doesn't define who you are. You don't rest in your accomplishments at work. You don't even rest in who you are in your family. You rest firstly and foremostly in Christ. We don't claim to our pedigree. We don't claim any heritage. When we stand before God, all we have to claim is Christ and his righteousness in us. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. We cannot boast in ourselves. So do you have a proper, proper view of God this morning and what salvation means for you? Are you living that out? If you're here and you haven't, have you accepted Christ? Have you confessed faith in him? You just need to be reminded this morning of how God looks at you and what salvation truly means for you. And where is your focus? Is your focus on that fish and punishment? Or is your focus on God and salvation? Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are a God of salvation. God, I thank you for your promises that we can trust in you, that we can rest in you, and that we can be confident in who you say we are. And Lord, when we forget, remind us. Remind us of your word. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us that you never change. 
And thank you, God, that when we mess up and we come to you, we don't come to you perfectly. We come to you broken. We come to you sinful in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness. And may we never forget what that means. May we never forget where you have taken us from, what you have saved us from. And not only that, but what you have saved us to. That we are now, we are now sons and daughters in you. We are now forgiven and redeemed and justified. Father, I ask as we leave this place, as we go out to our jobs, to lunch, whatever it may be, God, that we will live with a proper focus on you, that we will live as people who are redeemed, who are called to God, who are justified, and that we are a new creation. I ask that your truth will be made alive in our hearts today. In your name, Jesus. Amen.